Hi, and welcome back to the European VC, the go-to podcast for everything European VC. If you love the show, share it with your friends and join our newsletter at eu.vc. Today, we're happy to welcome Ennis and Khan, general partner and investor at 500 Emerging Europe, who the EU VC syndicate is investing into. In this episode, we dive deep on their recent rebrand from 500 Istanbul to 500 Emerging Europe their emerging talent thesis and the value chain drift that's causing emerging Europe to be such an overlooked opportunity. It was an absolute pleasure to meet up with the guys at How to Web and experience exactly how hot the ecosystem and the support for what Ennis is building is. If you enjoy our content, do support us by hitting the follow button, giving us a review and following the European VC on LinkedIn. The 15th of December is the day you need to have in mind. EUVC is hosting a webinar with Kathy, David and Andreas. Kathy will show us how to approach PR as an individual and as a firm. Sign up at eu.vc forward slash events. Enes Khan, super nice to be here with you guys. We're no longer at the How To Web venue, but we are at the hotel just next door. Let's start with that. Why the hell are you guys at How To Web? Why isn't everyone in How To Web? It's an amazing event. I've been coming here for the past, I mean, not coming, coming because of the pandemic, but I've been coming in 2018, 2019. Yeah. Venue is amazing. A lot of good startups. Man, the number of deals that I've seen in How To Web and I've missed, and I've seen them become centaurs and unicorns. That's It's the place to be in Romania, no? To, if you want to get a hold of the ecosystem, you have to be coming here. So you have a sexy How To Web anti-portfolio, I imagine. Our how-to-web anti-portfolio, I think, might be better than our actual portfolio. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I have to do the math. It's confusing. If I should just add something here. So it's my first time at how-to-web. And what I'd say is amazing is that so we committed to doing the syndicate into into 500 emerging Europe back in February. And then it's we've been a bit in our own, uh, you know, uh, uh, COVID zone and not being out in, in the events until now. So it's been awesome to be here in Bucharest right in the middle of Emerging Europe's hometown or area, right? And it's just been awesome to meet all the people that are saying, we love that the first fund you guys are backing our 500 Emerging Europe. We love Ennis. We love what the team is building. You know, so it's just been great to come here and experience that. Uh, You know, because we've of course gotten those DMs and stuff. But it's great to experience it. So you didn't, you didn't like us before. You didn't do your notes, and now you like us. Now, we, <laughs> now, now we actually like you. Yes. So, <laughs> we're yeah. still at liking phase. When are we gonna come to the loving phase? Uh, that's, so we're in the hotel here, uh, in the <laughs> hotel room with our beds right next to us. Okay. So I'm sure the loving will come very soon. <laughs> <laughs> to hear that. Yeah. We've been waiting since February. Yeah. Okay, but so um, to the attentive listener, or the attentive listener will have heard that we just said 500 Martin Europe and not 500. Istanbul. We are super hyped that you have, I almost want to say, finally rebranded to 500 Emerging Europe because that's the name you should have had all the time. Yeah. But tell us the story. So if we have to go back to 2016 um, for me to tell the story. But while we were raising the fund back in 2016, it was chaotic times in Turkey. Um, There's a coup attempt. We raised the fund a week after the coup attempt in Turkey. And initially for the first two years, we only did Turkish companies. Out of a portfolio of 40 companies we had in fund one, the first 25 were only in Turkey. But after 2018, me and my partner, we said, hey, you know what? Why don't we explore Southeast Europe? It wasn't even Central Eastern Europe because you can't try Baltics or Poland with a $10 million vehicle, which is what we had back then. But we tried to do Greece, Ukraine. Bulgaria, then we got comfortable because our company that we invested in Bulgaria became successful. We had a good exit. The company that we did in, in Greece 
also became successful, raised a $30 million round, et cetera. So we did one in Romania as well. And I think they're killing it, by the way, great company. So with a $10 million vehicle, we did 10 investments in Southeast Europe. While we were doing Fund 2 and pandemic came, you're fundraising out of Zoom. Um, you can't shoot for the stars because obviously you're fundraising from Zoom. Doing a rebrand and saying that you would do Baltics, Poland, all the way to Turkey and call this region emerging Europe uh, would have been a stretch. We needed more dry powder. We needed a larger fund. But the moment we went above 30 million euros, it was on the agenda. I think since the beginning of the year, it was on our agenda that, hey, we have to rebrand the fund because it's not a Turkey fund anymore. It's actually covering 20 countries um, in the region. I think it resonates much better. I don't know, Khan, what do you think? Because when Khan joined about a year ago, it was 500 Istanbul, and he had no idea that we wanted the rebrand. And he has been all around the region in Baltic. And I've been complaining because it created all sorts of confusion with the founders, you know? When you go talk to them, what are these guys, Turks, doing, you know, here in Estonia? <laughs> so in order to, you know, cross that challenge, I, I was one of the, you know, fervent supporters of this rebrand just to clear that confusion around the name. And, you know, it makes a lot more sense. And I, I myself specifically kind of joined to lead some of our, you know, expansion into those um, countries. That's why I've been the one traveling the most um, into these regions. And yeah, I may be the happiest out of this. And you know, certainly seeing the results. You know, we never had inbound deal flow, but now we do. Like the, for the past couple of days, you know, you've been receiving them. I've been receiving a lot of them. So I guess it's working. Right. That away. is interesting. Let's deep dive into that. Tell us more about that. You know, I was you know knocking on doors, telling them, look, guys, we're, we're the Eastern European Fund of 500 covering this region. And people were like, okay, you're just saying that. Wait, you know, you have Istanbul on your name. You'll just go back to your Turkish deals and <laughs> never call me again, kind of thing. But now that, you know, we rebranded and thanks to everyone involved, um, got some coverage on it as well. We see a lot of, you know, people and Ennis is also super free with sharing my personal contact details <laughs> on, on all possible <laughs> platforms. <laughs> I've been, you know, receiving about different... So if you want to know, Ken's number is... <laughs> <laughs> he has a couple of phone numbers. But man, in the venture capital industry, there are not a lot of different modes that you can build. And the only mode that you build is the brand. You don't have a network effects, I don't believe in it. You don't have economies of scale. Um, you don't have high switching costs. You don't have cornered resources. None of those modes that you can actually have in a business, you don't, except for the brand. So unfortunately, brand matters a lot. There's another thing that we should just get into is also what you said. Well, we came from a 10 million euro fund. Then when we got to 30, we realized, okay, now it actually makes sense to go out and say, we're doing more. Uh, we're not doing just 500 Istanbul and, and, and then a bit of stuff in, in, in Southeastern Europe. That, of course, comes with you're not a 30 million euro fund. Now you're aiming for 70 or raising 70 and you're just pulling up the final stretch. And I'm, you know, we all know that you're, you're going to get there. It's just a matter of getting the commitment. So we love that. But tell us a bit about the thinking behind it. And also our listeners are all GPs, right? And everyone had you guys pictured to become a 30, 40 million euro fund and then you made the decision, let's go for the 70. Tell us the rationale, but also tell us about the process and the conversations you've had with LPs, because that's also one of the questions we had. Well, 70, that's big compared to 10 and compared to what you had before. What does that mean? Blah, blah, blah. Ooh, a lot of questions, a lot of questions. I have to answer this from first from a deal flow perspective and a thesis perspective. Uh, from the get-go in 2016, we crafted our thesis in Turkey in a way that we don't invest into local businesses. We don't invest into companies that generate revenue locally. And I called this the population paradox back then, where countries with smaller populations created more unicorns than countries um, that have higher populations like Spain, Italy versus Estonia and Israel. Uh, but with geopolitical issues in the region and the fact that entrepreneurial became a global endeavor, we saw more and more entrepreneurs from mid-market countries like Turkey or Romania or Poland go global from day one. It's not like they want to conquer the market locally and then they go global. No, they go to the U.S. mostly from day one. So that has been our thesis in Fund 1. And when you look from that perspective, that's all around Central Eastern Europe. And that's what 
makes Central Eastern Europe unique. If you go to other emerging markets like Latin America, Middle East, uh, Southeast Asia, Africa, etc., they have the typical emerging market investment thesis. If you want to invest into funds that are based in those regions, you want to take an exposure to those regions. And what I mean by that is countries grow in their own country, then they expand regionally, their revenues from that region, their financing is from that region, potentially their M&A also happens from that region. Along that value chain, everything is regional and you get that regional exposure. Not the case with our investment thesis in Turkey, not the case with Central Eastern Europe alone. Then that makes Central Eastern Europe unique. I think um, Estonia has the highest unicorn per capita in the world. That's easily replicable around 20 countries in Central Eastern Europe. And that would make Central Eastern Europe larger as a startup ecosystem than France or Germany or UK, which is what excites us. So from that deal flow perspective, we're already executing on that thesis in Turkey. We just wanted to expand that thesis to Southeast Europe. And you call that the emerging talent thesis, or is, am I correct in saying that? Yeah, correct, because you only get exposed to the talent in that region and all else, all of the other levers of a business, are all international and mostly to more mature technology markets, your revenue, your financing, your Series A, your Series B, down the road, and hopefully your IPO. So you only bet on that talent. It's not like you have to believe in a region, you just have to believe in the talent yeah. in that region. Yeah, I think that's an incredibly important point. And it's something that everyone around Europe is also understanding more and more. And it's why we're seeing the clever VCs moving quite heavily to Eastern Europe. Yeah, I, I think it's just it's something that if our listeners haven't, you know, paid attention to that part of Eastern Europe, you know, with that mindset, then I'd urge them to just think about it again, because it's not the emerging market thesis anymore that's relevant. It's the emerging talent thesis. I really love that way of uh, thinking about it. Then, and take us through the, the, the other part of the equation. And then um, why Southeast Europe? Because while we were trying to understand which markets we should target, we wanted to target a market where, A, there, had, there shouldn't be that much competition because we're newbies to the market. We have to build a brand, etc. This is back in 2019. And B, us being an American and a global fund or a fund with a global footprint should differentiate us from either the local guys in the country or the international people looking in. That's why we targeted um, Bulgaria, Greece and Ukraine first, by the way. We didn't try Baltics or Poland with a $10 million vehicle. You want to go to ecosystems with a bit of a capital crunch where your capital matters and you bridging them to Silicon Valley matters more because that bridge isn't as robust as it is in the Baltics, for example. So we tested out Southeast Europe. And then with a 30 million euro fund, we were still going to do that. With a 30 million euro fund, we were still going to do 15% of the investments, maybe maybe 20 max, into um, Southeast Europe. We would maybe do deals in Poland and Baltics, but we weren't that bullish. In fact, Romania, to me, was the top of my priority given the limited fund size. But going from 30 to 70 means that we can actually write larger checks in Poland and Baltics. And with more capital available in those countries, the seed rounds are larger compared to the eastern, more eastern part of Europe. Hence, that means a larger fund, larger follow-ons for proper ownership matter. And that's our fund model changed from 30 million fund to a 70 million euro fund. The number of companies that we're going to invest in changed only from 25 to 30. It's not because we're going to invest in Series B. No, it's because the companies that we're going to invest in Southeast Europe, especially in Baltics and Poland, are going to require larger ticket sizes and to maintain that ownership would require even more. When we first spoke, you said something, Anis, that I really enjoyed, which was you talked about, from your perspective, the main risks of going from 10 to 30 and how you were dealing with them. Same question, but from 10 to 70. First, I should say where there are no risks. So going from 10 to 70, has our stage of investment changed? No, we still do pre-seed and seed. We like doing idea stage. In fact, maybe one of our differentiations um, in one of these markets would be the most bullish idea stage investor. Yeah. Um, you can be full-time in your previous job and we'll still give you that first one, 1.5 million euro check. So that hasn't changed going from fund one to fund two. Um, number of deals, portfolio management hasn't changed that much. Again comparable um, number of companies that we're going to invest in. What changed back then was that we, we reserved um, 70% of the fund for follow-ons, while as in a $10 million vehicle, you can have 20-30% follow-ons max. But with a 20-30% follow-on allocation available, all you do is you keep your paratas as much as you can. That means your decision bar is not that high. 
you invest into companies, you actually give decisions. But on a, on a follow-on funding perspective, you just ride the market. Whichever companies are performing well, and it's not tough to identify them because they raise from um, sequoias of the world, you try to maintain your ownership and you can allocate your follow-on like that. Um, you're not trying to outbeat the market with your follow-ons, yeah. is what I'm saying. With the 30 million euro fund, um, the way we structured follow-ons was that half of the follow-ons was going to be us trying to increase our ownership company in companies, which is where we're actually trying to outbeat the market in whatever stage we invest in. That might be seed, post-seed, series A, it doesn't matter. Um, and the other half of the follow-on capital that we're going to invest, we're going to be to, again, maintain our ownership in good performing companies. We're not trying to outbeat the market within that certain company. I think going from 30 to 70, that hasn't changed either. So the most riskiest part of our thesis is about one third of the fund is first tickets, pre-seed, IDSH, seed. We know how to do that. We've done that before. We have that access. We have that um, competitive advantage. We'll just execute on it. Another one third of the fund is us maintaining our pro rata in companies while they're raising our, their Series A's or Series B's. But that last one third, which is us increasing our ownership in companies, is the riskiest bucket because of multiple reasons. I mean, A, we haven't done it before. We need to, that's why we built a great team. Khan with the investment banking background. Aaron joined as a GP. He was a late stage Series A investor uh, before at Revo Capital. And Khan, before it was a private equity guy. Before it was a private equity guy. So we tried to build in that skill set to the team, but have we done it before together? No, it's going to be our first time trying it. That's risk number one. And risk number two is because our whole thesis is a value chain drift thesis, meaning we try to plug entrepreneurs out of the Polish value chain, out of the Turkish value chain, and then plug them into mostly to US and then somewhat to UK financing value chain. Yeah. Those companies that you're going to be able to increase your ownership in were probably going to be the ones that are not able to raise from top, top, top funds of the world, but then do you want to actually increase your ownership? And there's a sweet spot there. I, yeah. There, we shouldn't wait for companies to start fundraising. We should just be preempting it. That was exactly what I was about to, to get into because that is where I feel that I really hate the answer. So how do you think about follow-ons? And then they say, well, we don't ever price the round. And I'm like, well, I would very much like you to price the round. And I would very much like you to have commitment to the team before anyone else starts building it. And then they price it higher than you would have to because you could be there three months before. But I'd love to dive into more with you. So tell us about how do you think about them preempting? Yeah, I think one third of the follow-ons where we were trying to increase our ownership, uh, we will preempt. Yeah. And we started doing that. We're actually considering two companies where we can preempt. That's also because with a 20 million, not even 20 million, we did a 16 million first close. And we did a couple of deals with that. Yeah. Only, if, only if we have known that we were going to get to 70, we could have invested much more into yeah. some of our portfolio companies where we only have 6 7% right now, where ideally we wanted to have 12 to 15%. So we're considering whether we should preempt it and that, that was a big issue for us, I think, six months ago, because in a bull market, entrepreneurs, when they don't need the capital, and you try to preempt yeah. them, the valuations get higher and higher. But with the current capital crunch, us being in a bear market, I think we now have that advantage. It, it's, it's actually to our favor. By the way, this capital crunch also is our benefit, because of, while we we're trying to invest into Central Eastern Europe, capital didn't matter at all, because there was enough abundance of capital. Yeah. Not the case anymore. So I think this gives us a good window of opportunity to build a brand, get into the best deals until this bear market is ends. But coming back to your question, we will preempt. While preempting, we're definitely going to make sure that although it's going to be at a higher valuation or a cap than we initially did, it's not going to be more than 2x. It's going to be less than 2x more. And these are mostly going to be companies where we invested at idea stage when they had nothing. But now they have solid traction. They've shown early signs of product market fit that we're going to double down on, not the ones where we invested with traction and their revenue group. Yeah. So if we separated companies into two, let's call them blue ocean and red ocean companies. The blue ocean companies that we invest in, we're bullish on going idea stage, no prototype, no traction. And the moment they get 5K, 10K MRR, it might seem less, it might seem small, but it's not. Right, and right, that's, right, the right, ones, yeah, yeah. that's the ones where we're going to do preemption. 
But the Red Ocean companies where we invest at 10, 20K MRR, and now they have 80K, 100K, you see the business momentum. We feel like we should go along with the market in those types of companies because we've already made, I mean, it's easier for us to do the value chain drift in those companies. And the information asymmetry kind of gets diluted as opposed to the Blue Ocean ones. Khan, what do you think? Follow-ons. You already said everything. Right? <laughs> There's nothing left. There's nothing left. You, you, you already like dissected down all of the buckets and everything. I, I agree. Uh, <laughs> I would have loved that you said, nah, man, that, I completely disagree. <laughs> you, you said a bunch of stupid stuff. What am I supposed to say? <laughs> but maybe we can talk about, like, our decisions are all founder-led, right? So we only invest because of the founder. And what, everything else that we do, like cons, deep dives, competitive analysis, reference calls, talking with customers, financials, blah, 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 they're all more of a red flag review. They can never get us from zero to one. We don't do market conviction building. We do founder conviction building. But you only build a conviction on a founder after two meetings, three meetings. I mean, that's very shallow uh, data points. Whereas after you spend three months, six months, you have much more. So although from a business perspective, you might think that the risks are still there and we're investing at a higher valuation, we know much more about the founder and we feel like those founder risks, which are the largest risks, are getting down. Can we deep dive into an example, even if we keep it anonymous? Yeah, let's do it. I'd let's love to it. hear you guys talk about that. Let me just frame the question because it's no secret we're raising a syndicate to invest into 500 emerging Europe, right? And I think many people that are investing with us, they love the nitty gritty. They love to hear about the startups. They love that part of, of, of the equation. And we're... We're so passionate about the fun side, right? The GP side that we often don't talk about it. And I think it's cool that we highlight one story, keep it anonymous, but also understand, you know, the dynamics of what you just said from a conceptual level, actually. I'll say one of the MLOps companies because we have six of them. It's in So it's hard to find out which it's one. It's hard to find out, exactly. <laughs> so this company that we led the pre-seed about a year ago had zero traction. Founder was still full-time in the previous gig. No employees, no product, no nothing. Ever since our investment about a year ago, uh, obviously, he went full-time, he built a team of 15 people, and he pivoted very fast. He did like 10 pivots over the past year. And we've seen how fast he can execute, build a team, give judgments. He was able to build a top-notch team. If you look at the CVs in the team and the domain expertise that he built, you would understand it. He's actually going very aggressive. And I think a good founder, you can you see a good founder not on the bad days, but on the good days. Because on the bad days, everyone's doing their best for survival. It's how well you push on the good days that makes that. I mean, a company growth is not a line function. It's a step function that's determined by how fast you can push in those small windows of opportunities as a founder, either for customer penetration, revenue, fundraising, whatever it may be. So with this one company, working together with the founder for a year, although we knew him before, we've never worked before, we saw how well he's executing. And it's obvious that the company is going to be able to get from zero ARR to couple million dollars ARR in a year or so, very fast. And we see that happening. So we agreed internally that the moment we see one contract signed and we feel like it's going to happen over the next month, then we're going to preempt around. And when we invested about a year ago, the fund was much smaller, so we weren't able to get the 15% ownership that we desired, which gives us the room to at least get to 10% ownership, investing a bit higher than the initial round that we did about a year ago. You also stole my example. I was going to give a boring one and say that you know we couldn't achieve the ownership that we wanted at the time because of the smaller fund size. And uh, we kind of did everything was going well. It was one of those Red Ocean plays that Ennis mentioned. And we basically did, as he mentioned, less than a 2x markup and you know increase our ownership as we could do that. Final question from my side, because we've got our dinner in just a too short time, so we have to round it up. But I'd love to just come back to the process of raising the fund and making this big of a difference, because from everyone looking from the outside, it will look like a big difference. Now you've explained why it was not. But I'd love to hear, you know, LP reactions and how you handle it. This is, of course, not that maybe that not that interesting for the people listening in that are investing with us. It's not from that perspective, more, but more from the GP perspective, all the people out there raising their own funds and thinking about, okay, how much during a fund weight race can I shift in my strategy, right? 
Because it's personally, I manage it well. This is a bold statement, but I think we have the healthiest LP base in Europe. And this is a bold statement. We have close to nine. You have us, right? We, we, have, we have you guys. That's why I'm saying that. We have 90 LPs. No one has 10% ownership in the fund. It's all less than 10%, which means it's actually a very, very separate GPLP structure where any approval that you want to get from your LPs, you actually have to get from dozens of people, yeah, if not more than 50. Yeah, from 50 people. There is no one mandate or a couple of public mandate that's pushed on you at all let alone on perspective. So some things that we do, grazing the fund from 30 to 50, 50 to 70, or rebranding the fund, or going more deeper into centuries in Europe, not everyone has to like it. And that's why there are all these um, LPA clauses. And we got 95% approval for all of that that I just mentioned, but I think it was a very, very healthy conversation. So I'm, I'm really, I feel we're blessed in that sense. And as we grow as a fund um, over the next three years, six years, 10 years, whatever, with different fund life cycles, I would love it to be that way where we have 200 LPs going for a 200 million fund rather than having five or six LPs and um, getting their mandates, their agendas, their internal politics pushed onto you. I, th I don't think that's healthy at all. But to your question, what happens with fund size and what everyone says is as the fund size increases, uh, the potential upside also decreases, but downside also gets protected. You become a less volatile of an asset. And I'm saying that on a negative way, not in a positive way, because if you're investing into VC, you want it to be volatile. You're not making sure that you get your 1x back. If you want to do that, go invest in another asset class. So our whole thesis of still doing idea stage, increasing our regional geographic presence, getting high ownership in those companies, preempting with follow-ons, not saying that we're going to do proratas, is to make sure that we maintain that potential upside. So we want to increase the fund size while making sure that we're not um, reducing our returns and we still have that upside potential kept. So the whole thesis, we could have easily said that, hey, now we're going to invest in cities A and Bs, yeah. which would be downside protection. We could have easily said that, hey, we're going to do 50% first tickets, 50% follow-ons, and follow-ons are going to be just proratas, so we're not going to be preempting companies. All of that we could have said, but we're not doing that. Uh, and in the deals, like we've also seen that, you know, the pre-seed deals are getting much larger, you know, supported by this bull market and also us expanding into these more mature markets, such as, you know, the Baltics to carve out ourselves a place. So I guess it also, like the data also showed that we needed a bigger fund. I really love the point about not going for downside protection as you grow, but finding a way to still keep the, the risk profile of the fund, of a seed stage fund. You know, and I think our investors especially should be happy with that, right? Because if you have limited amounts of capital, and you can't do too many funds, and then you start caring about risk protection, right? Yeah. But with us bringing the ticket down so that you can do that play, you can stay true to the VC game and do funds that can give you a big-ass return. And then if it's not 500 emerging, it's one of the others that we're doing. Just invest in the others as well. But don't put all your capital in one of them and then say, well, now I've got all everything I need. No, because that's not what you should get from seed stage funding. We are a young team with still 30 plus years ahead of us uh, from a career perspective. All of us are like from 20 till yeah. like 35. So we're very, very young. So what we're doing with 500 Emerging Europe, uh, we have to try to ups maximize the upside so that it is fun. Yeah. Otherwise, it would be boring as hell. Let me round this off with two questions and I'll direct the first one at Can. Why would you say the world needs 500 Emerging Europe? I guess the region needs us to bridge the region as, as we're you know, doubling down on that um, emerging talent thesis that we're going for, uh, we really need to be supporting these pre-seed founders early on that we think that have that you know, global caliber of you know, delivering global products. We need to enable them as fast as we can, plug them into the San Francisco, UK ecosystems. And it's really fun to see that we're doing that and you know, helping these guys go to those markets faster and get some results. That's one thing that we haven't really talked about, which we thought we should, which is your co-investors are typically very big brand names from the US. 
And it has been amazing to hear, to see all the US guys that, you know, everyone is looking a bit up to. You guys are pals with them. You're co-investing with them all the time. But I just wanted to detect that, that it's super cool to see how it actually really works. So that's nice. Yeah. The, the, the follow-on question that I wanted to ask and direct to Ennis is, you talked about these founders going to, to these, these, you know, expanding, global, global expansion, basically. Why do the best founders pick 500 Emerging Group? Ooh, are the best founders picking 500 Emerging Europe? I don't know. Ask me in a year and then I'll, I'll let you know. Why should they pick 500 Emerging Europe then? I think uh, we have three value propositions to different types of founders. I think A is Americanizing a company because I don't believe in going global. I believe going to the US because especially in enterprise SaaS world and a lot of the success stories from centuries in Europe is enterprise SaaS. US market is larger than the rest of the world combined. Unfortunately, we're the only US fund that's mandated to invest in the region. Yeah, you can tell me that a lot of the US funds are also looking into the region, they come and go, et cetera. None of them have a mandated 70 million euro fund to be deployed into the region. So that's one Americanization. Some founders already get that covered because of their background, because of where they were based, what they did before, et cetera. I think the second one is global expansion. We have, there's no other fund in uh, Central Eastern Europe that's mandated to invest with offices in 25 countries around the world. We give them that. And I think the third piece is talent. We really because we have a three people talent team within the organization that we've been scaling for the past year and a half. Now we're going to replicate that in Poland as well. We do a lot of talent mapping and talent support for our portfolio. And I think it really, really makes a difference from a lot of perspectives. And, we, and no one else is doing that, unfortunately. That was the best episode of the day. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, man. <laughs> anyway, it, it was number five. <laughs> it was number five, and I think we've moderated the panel too as well. So uh, we're going to beat up, and now we're going to go get drunk with yes. uh, the rest of the cool gang here. So, guys, thanks very much for joining us here in our hotel room. Uh, you're always welcome. Thanks for having us Thanks in your room. I'll, I'll come tonight. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this episode of the European VC the go-to podcast for everything European VC. If you love the show, share it with your friends and join our newsletter at eu.vc. The 15th of December is the day you need to have in mind. EUVC is hosting a webinar with Kathy, David and Andreas. Kathy will show us how to approach PR as an individual and as a firm. Sign up at eu.vc forward slash events.